0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Why in the World. I'm Brian Nixon and if you know anything about me, you know that I tend to be a bit of a nerd when it comes to reading and learning about psychoanalysis, particularly relational psychoanalysis, which emerged in the 1980s and has continued to evolve ever since. So when Dr. Stephen Kuchuk agreed to be my guest on the podcast, my inner nerd started breakdancing. I'm excited about this episode It was a true pleasure talking with Dr. Kuchuk about his new book, The Relational Revolution in Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy. Dr. Kuchuk is a leading teacher and scholar of relational thinking and president of the International Association for Relational Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy. He is on the faculty of the New York University Postdoctoral Program in Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysis, as well as various other institutes. In addition to all of this, He's also just a joy to talk to in his new book. He writes in relational and other contemporary two person perspectives. The analyst's expertise is measured by the extent to which she can facilitate exploration of the inner subjective dynamics of a treatment in order to help the patient gain better understanding of older formative relationships, internalizations, repetitions, and barriers to desired change. In a successful treatment, co-created old truths are replaced with co-created new truths. Here is my conversation with Dr. Stephen Kuchuk. Dr. Kuchuk, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you for having me, Brian.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It feels like a privilege to me to have you on. I um, recently read your book, your latest book, The Relational Revolution in Psychotherapy, or in Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy, um, and loved it. It felt very different to me than a lot of... um, other psychoanalytic texts. Even like the first thing I noticed when I opened the Amazon package was the size mm-hmm. of the book and the shape and the texture. Um, I was like, "This isn't your your typical analytical book."
1: Um, N- new meaning to judging a book by its cover, maybe. Yeah, or, or, I or I, absolutely, <laughs> I
0: absolutely I <laughs> absolutely made a judgment. Yeah, I was like, "This <laughs> this feels this feels different." I mean, um, and I I was curious, and I mean. I want to get into the content of the book uh, throughout this, but I also just wanted to ask: like, was that intentional? Like, it it was the, the shape, the size, the coloring, all of that.
1: Yeah, uh, confer books is a relatively new publisher uh, that that has started Karnak books, or I should say, restarted Karnak books. Karnak books is a psychoanalytic publisher that has been around for many, many decades, and went away, was bought by Rutledge. It's a whole history there. But at any rate, um, Confer Books is a new publisher out of the UK. They merged with or started and then merged with Carnac Books. But Confer's mission, or one of their missions, is to present psychoanalytic texts that are a little bit more user-friendly, where the design is a little bit more appealing. The language is hopefully not as off-putting to people outside of the field or even in the field.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so design and sizing and font size um, uh, are all taken into consideration
2: mm.
1: by the publisher. So when they approached me and asked me to write an introductory overview text of relational psychoanalysis, the mission as they saw it was a book that maybe uh, a, a layperson might possibly uh, get something out of, even if our main audience is professional. Mm-hmm. So you, you picked up on that right away.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, as I was saying before we officially started here, like I feel very similarly passionate about how do we take the, these riches that exist in the psychoanalytic writings and literature, particularly the relational arm of that for me, um, and make it accessible to a broader audience of, of therapists um, about how how what it looks like to really show up presently with your, with your clients and bring some authenticity and use the relationship between the therapist and the patient to, to really get into the work.
1: Right. When people hear the word psychoanalysis, they, and I I think even people in our mental health field, but certainly outside of the field, they picture the cold, distant, quiet brooding, maybe if I'm not stretching that cliche too far. Um, therapist who doesn't speak and who is, I don't know, maybe needs to be dusted off or at least the theory needs to be. Mm-hmm. And that just isn't what psychoanalysis has to be anymore. Mm-hmm. Relational is a very different way, as you know, mm-hmm. of approaching the work. So if our literature can be a little more accessible, uh, that, that works as well.
0: Great. Yeah. I think that's a, a much needed thing. Like there's this, you know, I've heard other even analysts say, um, you know, like this stuff has to get out of these institutes because if it doesn't, it's going to die. There's this sort of feeling of that um, it's almost like they're in academia writing to one another more than getting it out to people where it can be integrated and used in a in a meaningful way.
1: Yeah, that's well put. The analytic institute is a is a very isolated place. And if you're in the Institute community, it can be a very exciting, stimulating place.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. But um, the fact that that has traditionally been the only way to learn these theories and help our patients to go deeper in their work uh, is, is problematic. Mm. So your podcast is certainly one way of bringing the theory out of the Institute and into uh, the public and other Mm. Of study and I, I'm grateful for that. Mm, thank you. And sure. And 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 my book is an attempt in that direction. Mm-hmm. So, well,
0: let's let's talk about the book, um, mm-hmm. the relational revolution in psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Um, you know, I guess for my audience who there's a number of them are who are therapists, but not analytically or psychodynamically trained, um, but certainly curious about what, like, what is there? There's something there that's interesting. Um, Or maybe they just have a feeling of like, there's gotta be more to this work than just thoughts and behaviors and symptom management. Um, And so for for their sake, can you talk a little bit about
1: what is relational psychoanalysis? Sure. Part of the, and, and, and Brian, building on what you were saying before in terms of getting this work out of the institutes, even inside of the institutes, a lot of the terms that psychoanalysts use are so damn confusing. <laughs> um, I assume we can say "damn" in a podcast.
2: Yeah, sure. <laughs> and, can more and more than <laughs> that,
1: we can even go further than that. Um, so the terms are problematic. <clears throat> the word "relational" within psychoanalysis was first used in 1983. Stephen Mitchell, writing with Jay Greenberg, these are were two psychoanalysts. Uh, training and working at a William Allenson White Institute in New York City, where I am, uh, came up with the term relational psychoanalysis uh, as an umbrella term to organize schools of thought within psychoanalysis in which object-seeking, object-relating, person-to-person-relating was seen as the main determinant of psychological development, human motivation, as opposed to Freud's drive theory. So up until 83, the primary way of thinking about uh, psychoanalysis is, is for the most part, drives pressing for discharge. It's, it's sort of, it's actually not accurate to say until 83 because we had object relations theory. We had other theories looking at object seeking, but the primary mode of understanding within psychoanalysis was was drives sex and aggression, pressing for discharge. This became central to development. It motivated our lives, the way we think, the way we feel, according to Freud and his followers. Mitchell and Greenberg in 83 said, look, we have other schools of thought since Freud. We have British object relations theory. We have interpersonal psychoanalysis, some forms of existential or humanistic psychoanalysis. Uh, let's divide up the theories and look at relational theories and drive theories. And so the term began being used that way. However, roughly three years later, writing on his own, Stephen Mitchell came up with the term relational psychoanalysis to mean something different. So we have what we sometimes call, and I explain this in the book, small or relational, the umbrella, Object relations, interpersonal, humanism, et cetera. And then we have big R relational. So I think that our conversation today is going to be mostly about big R relational psychoanalysis. What is is relational psychoanalysis then according to Mitchell's use of the term some years after he and Greenberg came on the scene? Well, we see in relational psychoanalysis according to Stephen Mitchell, starting in the mid to late 80s, as a merging of object relations theory and interpersonal psychoanalysis, along with feminism, feminist studies, queer theory, socio cultural, political studies. We have to look at the environment what is a person going through in mm-hmm. terms of their culture and mm-hmm. politics, et cetera. Um, but, but the psychoanalytic theories that are coming together are primarily object relations merging with interpersonal. Object relations, plus interpersonal, plus a larger environmental consideration, give you what we now call relational psychoanalysis. There you go. <laughs> there you go.
0: Yeah, and there's so much packed into each of those categories, object relations, interpersonal, Um
1: yeah, you're right. Because we then have to say what is object relations and sure. what is interpersonal, which I get into a little bit in the book. Uh, but, but you're right. Those are their own conversations.
0: What would so. you say the, the primary movement of, of that transition, starting with object relations and interpersonal moving to uh, capital R relational, mm-hmm. What, mm-hmm. what's the primary movement away from drive theory? Like how, how would you sort of summarize what's different?
1: That's a great question. It helps me to organize um, an answer that might be of, of some use for our conversation today. Yeah. Uh, it's a move away from an overconsideration of the importance of drives. Um, right. So, in drive theory, if we're talking primarily about sex and aggression and intrapsychic conf- conflict, the unconscious pressing for discharge, the analyst's job in classical theory to make the unconscious conscious. In object relations theory, we're looking more at the ways in which the patient has internalized their parents Mm -hmm. and other primary objects or people. And in interpersonal psychoanalysis, we're looking at the way the patient, really any of us, the human, Mm -hmm. interacts with others in their world, including the therapist, and how that comes into the therapy room and can be worked with. So I would say then, the the move is more to a world of people mm-hmm. than a world of um, unconscious phenomena and drives pressing to be expressed.
0: Yeah, that feels way more human. You know that, the, mm. that there are two two humans in the room. Um, so like I'm I'm fascinated by that because it seems to you know you can see the trajectory, and I think this is what you what you cover in the book too is the movement away from a one person psychology where the analyst is um, this expert that sits back objectively isn't really involved in what's happening in the room is just sort of this blank screen for transference to take place and then be interpreted um, to, you know, the interpersonal relational movement of like something unconscious and sometimes conscious is happening between us. That is actually
1: useful to engage as well. Absolutely, if we start to talk about some of the major tenets of relational psychoanalysis, we see the focus moving towards the human relationship, as you say. Um, now, that it's not that that wasn't present and focused on in more classical, so-called one-person models of the mind. It was always two people in the room. But the analyst was there, as you know, in in older ways of thinking more as an instrument uh, through which to explore the patient and the analyst's psychology, their own personality was thought of as something that had to be kept completely in the shadows, if not totally under wraps.
0: Yeah. Get it out of the room.
1: Get it out of the room. Yeah, exactly. Go back for more treatment. You need more therapy to keep your personality out of the room more Now, the value in that, if we're not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, is that the patient can and should and must be privileged.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: The problem in these older ways of thinking uh, is that we miss the ways in which the therapist is directly or indirectly affecting the patient. Right. And it's not so much, and I, I write something to this effect in the book, it's not so much that we should bring our subjectivity in the room, the therapist should bring their personality and feelings and issues into the treatment room, but rather that we inevitably do. Mm -hmm. So if we can assume that we do the way relationalists assume, then how does that affect the therapy? What is it like for our patient to sit with somebody who likes to talk, who doesn't like to talk, who um, may be a little bit shy, as many analysts are, or who may find themselves showing off sometimes. What does the individual personality of the therapist do Mm -hmm. to the therapy? Relationalists ask this question all the time. What would uh, uh, an older school of thought ask? Uh, How do we keep the the personality out of the room?
0: And the the idea being like, keep it out of the room so you have a more pure uh, ability to analyze the patient rather than
1: That's right. The older thinking used to be that any analyst is interchangeable with any other analyst. If you put a patient down in the chair and I'm in the chair doing the therapy, but then leave and Brian, you come in and finish the session, although maybe then you have to leave for some reason and your colleague X comes into the, that we would all be doing the work if we're very well-trained therapists, we would all be doing the work exactly the same. And we would be doing it in a pure way in which the transference could unfold as you say, completely free of influence from us. What a relational therapist would say is you would have three or four different therapies Mm -hmm. with three or four different therapists. And that's important and rich and valuable. Maybe let's clarify a term. So relational psychoanalysis assumes a two-person psychology, as as you noted before. That means we're looking at the therapist's psychology and the patient's psychology. Mm Uh, classical theory assumed a one-person psychology where the focus of study was only on the patient. So there are some major differences, right. of course.
0: Absolutely. Well, your book does a great job of touching on the analyst's subjectivity, which I interpret as just meaning it's the self of the therapist in the room. Um, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts specifically about that chapter, you know, like that there is no, it is inevitable that there, the self of the therapist, the therapist subjectivity is in the water. You can't get it out no matter how hard you try. Um, And so I would love to hear.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're really capturing the essence of, of, of this area of our work. Well, for a hundred years of psychoanalysis though, we were trained to erase ourselves, we meaning therapists. I I should mention, I I, I tend to go back and forth between the word analyst and the word therapist. I'm assuming uh, we're talking about a a clinician with an interest in the unconscious and transference, counter-transference and such, whether or not one has uh, formally studied and received a certificate in psychoanalysis. So analysts, analytic therapists, whatever term we use, um, have been told to erase ourselves if we bring ourselves in the room, if the patient knows anything about us, it will make it harder for him or her to then project themselves, their own thoughts and feelings uh, will be interrupted because they're constantly shaping themselves according to who they think we are. Mm. Person the therapist gets in the way. Now in a two person psychology, when we are considering our subjectivity and I like your definition of, of subjectivity of the therapist self I I would say um, anything to do with who the therapist is, as a person, our psychology, our emotions, crises we've lived through, or maybe experiencing currently, anything that makes us who we are, spirituality, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, The thinking now is all of that uh, enriches the treatment. And if the therapist can track their subjectivity, if I can think to myself, well, I grew up in a particular household. Um, My parents' dynamics were such that I had to be careful talking about certain topics, et cetera. If I can think of some of this, I can get a better sense of the person that my patient is meeting. Mm -hmm. Because even when I think I can keep myself in check, and of course I try, we all must try to some extent, to keep our issues more in the background than the foreground. What we foreground is the patient's material. Even if I think I can do that, it's, it's very limited, mm-hmm. right, in, in the possibility. So my patients are gonna sense a certain kind of human. Uh, what's it like to be, you know, what I've, I've had patients say to me, you seem so patient or you seem flustered or you seem, whatever. They read us, mm-hmm. they know who we are. One of my goals for the book was to include a tremendous amount of citations from the relational literature. Uh, I want the book to be a starting off point, but also a place for therapists and others to be able to learn even more about our field.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So one of the uh, papers that I cite is by my my friend and, and colleague, the late Lou Aaron, and Lou wrote about the patient's curiosity about the therapist's subjectivity.
0: Hmm.
1: It's a paper I cite more than once. I believe in the book. Yeah, so-
0: I actually I have a a paragraph from that written down here. Like that's kind of where where my mind was was going with this too. Um, so I'm I'm excited to hear where you're
1: going. Um, like- sure, and i be curious to hear your, what what you wrote down and what it what it uh, stirs for you, but. Lou, made, Lou drew a parallel uh, between child development and treatment that a lot of us draw, um, but he noted that the child, starting from infancy, but certainly all further on, has a curiosity, a hunger to know its parent's mind hmm. and to know where that child lives in the parent's mind. How is the parent thinking or feeling? What is the parent thinking or feeling about the child? So too, the patient learns about themselves by learning how the therapist thinks or feels about them. So in terms of looking at the therapist's subjectivity, we're looking at who we are as a clinician, what our shortcomings are, what our strengths are, what our tendencies are, what kind of material are we more interested in or less interested in, what kind of patient do we tend to do well with given how we grew up and how we now function in the world. All of these are elements of the analyst subjectivity. But as Lou and I and others have pointed out, we also would do well to think about how the patient experiences our subjectivity. What is that like for them? What is their curiosity about us? Or what is their lack of curiosity about us? Mm -hmm. And what does that teach us? One more element, of the subject of subjectivity before I take a pause and and we can talk more together about this rather than me just monologuing (laughs) um, is, uh, (laughs) thanks, um, is without being able to track how we're thinking or feeling during a session, the therapist that is, we may very well be missing elements of the patient. A lot of clinical material comes up in a session through dissociated content, meaning that a patient might not be aware that what they're feeling, let's say is grief or sadness, and therefore they're not directly talking about it. But if I'm sitting in the room and I'm suddenly feeling very sad, I need to figure out where that's coming from. Is that some element of my patient's dissociated material that I can now understand and, and work with? Is it something in me that's getting stirred? That might help me understand her material more is it both but if i'm not in touch if i'm working according to the old school of psychoanalysis in which i try to bury my subjective pieces
0: Mm
1: -hmm. then i'm going to miss patient data as well
0: yeah yeah it's that idea of like what's taking shape in in this middle space the between um you have Mm -hmm. another chapter on inner subjectivity which is basically what you're talking about with therapist subjectivity meeting patient subjectivity. And now there's a mixture. Um, I think, you know, Carl Jung talked about that and uh, it's like when two personalities come together, it's like a chemical mixture. And if anything happens, both are changed. Um, well put. And I think that that's what this feels like to me is like the use of my subjectivity um, with, a, with a patient might be something like you said like i'm observing like this is getting stirred in me this feeling this affect this bodily sensation or some kind of musing or reverie my mind is going in this direction but to be able to hold on to that with some curiosity about like well well why this particular part of my my subjectivity or my story why is this getting churned up right now and the way i've been kind of thinking about it is that the, the specificity of our um, subjectivity. So, like, an affect gets stirred in me and it makes me think of some wounding from my own story, or, uh, you know, some scene comes back to mind. I'm thinking of, like, the story or the particular scene as a vehicle that is being used to bring the affect into my awareness in a way. And so, in engaging the patient, it's not about the specific story in my life the specific story was the vehicle to bring, bring the affect forward. And so now I have to wonder what's going on regarding this specific affect with this specific patient that also has something to do with their repetition or their story or something that now we're caught up in together that we need to, to catch on to and work through.
1: That is such a nice way of using yourself and your subjectivity because in the way you're explaining it, you you um, contain the story. You're not flooding your patient or imposing on your patient mm-hmm. with your story through a deliberate disclosure, but rather using um, these pieces of your subjectivity. It's such a great example of of um, of what I mean when I say that the subjectivity is central to our work now as relational therapists mm-hmm. or analysts. So, yeah, I think that's great.
0: Well, and. Thank you. And I think along those lines, like the paragraph that I wrote down from when minds meet, which um, was Lou Aaron's chapter on the patient's experience of the analyst subjectivity, which you wrote a wonderful intro to that chapter in that book as well. Um, Oh, are
1: you thinking, Oh, you're thinking of Khalid Atlas's new collection of, of Aaron's writing. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful book. Yeah.
0: The paragraph that grabbed me when I read that book, which I think you also cite in your new book, um, he says i believe that people who are drawn to analysis as a profession have particularly strong conflicts regarding their desire to be known by another that is conflicts concerning intimacy in more traditional terms these are narcissistic conflicts over voyeurism and exhibitionism why else would people who what why else would people choose a profession in which they spend their lives listening and looking into the lives of others while they themselves remain relatively silent and hidden the recognition that analysts, even those who attempt to be anonymous, are never invisible, and furthermore, the insight that patients seek to know their analysts, raise profound anxieties for analysts who are struggling with their own longings to be known and their defensive temptations to hide.
1: Bravo! I, I love that paragraph by Lou, Same. and, I, and I, yeah, and and it resonates clearly for you and, and for me, and and for a lot of us. Um, yeah, there you have it, and what a tragedy that it took maybe literally a hundred years or thereabouts for us to be able to give ourselves permission to look at mm-hmm. who we are. A tragedy for the clinician, more so even a tragedy for the patient. Of course, the clinician is the patient as well, since we right. have our own treatments. Um, but for the profession, it's it's a loss without looking at uh, who the therapist is, we're really um, depriving our patients
2: Hmm. of a
1: fuller experience. So what does it mean that most of the healers, most of the therapists, or certainly many, if I'm to be more conservative about it, are people who are conflicted about being seen? That paragraph in that paper by Lou also brings to mind one of my favorite analytic quotes, which is Winnicott's, it's a joy to be hidden but a disaster not to be found mm. i mean i mean there is a human dilemma that that many of us can relate to yeah. what toll i wonder and i write about this in, in in this current book what toll does it take on a person to be a therapist we know i mean we don't have to go woe is me we are incredibly privileged humans who get to do this kind of work it's a passion and a calling for most of us mm-hmm. um and And so we we know the positives, but what is the impact and therefore what toll also does it take on a human to subjugate one's own uh, needs, desires, and so on, in service of listening to the other? That's a large part of the question Lou is asking in Mm -hmm. in, in this paragraph and in the paper overall, what does it do to us? And therefore, uh, how does it affect the treatment?
0: Mm You know, um well, I, I loved about, in, you know? in your book, like you you brought the personal element into that. Like you I was kind of moved by your own vulnerability as an author and analyst, where you're you're talking about your own story to some extent of this repetition of needing to hide parts of yourself and your family of origin, um, and then you know, learning how to do that, obviously. And then in your in your training finding that same thing being reinforced that parts of you are welcome and parts of you are not. And um, this whole idea that I think Lou Aaron's pointing to and that you've pointing to in your new book is how do we bring the analyst out of hiding that like instead of just repeating our own childhood patterns and woundings again and again, and having that sort of be praised as like the clinical gold standard, if you can keep yourself out of the room, the same way you did with your family when you were a kid, then that's, that's somehow good. But to say, wait, 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 no, like we need more of who you are in the room because that's informing what's happening.
1: Absolutely. That's really well put. It, it seems to me that's getting to the core of the dilemma that a lot of us have as therapists. But how do we do that without impinging on the patient space? That becomes mm-hmm. the question. It seems to me that when people who uh, are not is knowledgeable about relational psychoanalysis, talk about relational work, there is often a misunderstanding Mm -hmm. that relational therapy means all we're doing is relating to our patients, playing on the word relating, relational, obviously. And as part of relating, we're telling our patients about ourselves, we're disclosing, deliberately disclosing, because there's also, of course, always inadvertent disclosing, which goes on whether we want it to or not, but we're disclosing and we're impinging on and we're spilling, but that's not relational work. Relational work, when understood more fully and done well, involves exactly what you're saying, which is bringing ourselves into the room internally. Mm -hmm. The analyst tracking who they are, as you said earlier, through reveries, associations, um, remembering one's story as a vehicle for emotion. I I love how you put that. And so, so that's an internal process that we hope will deepen the psychotherapy up with the patient, uh, not crowd them out of the room. Right. Yeah, and, and, and so how do we do that without impingement, but also without artificial burying of who we are and therefore missing who our patient is?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd be curious to know your thoughts, like to, to talk on more of like a practical in, in the clinical room, sort of way, like when you're sitting with a patient, how are you attuning to your own subjectivity um, and these intersubjective things that are arising between you and the patient? Like how, how do you allow yourself to take all of that in and then um, also not burden the patient with it by taking it off track, but like making use of these things that are getting stirred in you with this particular patient or like, What's your process with that? And I'm sure it may be different with every patient, but
1: great question. And quite right. It's different with different patients. It's also different depending on which of my self-states emerge, mm-hmm. right? So one of the assumptions of relational psychoanalysis is that we are all um multiply determined. We're we're all we're all we're all uh we all have multiple self-states, the parts of us that are more quiet and shy or reserved, the parts that want to be seen, uh, the, uh, the funnier or more serious, we're, we're different selves.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Within a unitary self, Phil Bromberg, who is an interpersonalist, uh, and I think he would th- have called himself a relational analyst as well, but his primary identification was interpersonal for many years, um, talks about the concept of standing in the spaces, right? the the, the, uh, being many selves while feeling one integrated self Mm -hmm. to stand in the spaces between and amongst the multiple self states. So what's going on for me on a particular day might be a way to start an answer to your question of how do I try to track all of this? When I consciously remember, I try at the start of each day to tune in to what I think is going on for me. How am I Mm -hmm. feeling? Uh, as I'm on my way, I often do this on the way to the office and these days on the way to the office is still on the way to the office, even via zoom, Mm -hmm. because we're recording this during the pandemic, but, um, I try to figure out, you know, am I feeling, am I aware? Of course, I think we miss most of who we are, Hmm. which is why we often have to ask our patients to tell us what they're noticing and thinking and feeling about us not to derail a treatment away from the patient, but rather to help uh, help us know how we're coming across, how we're being received. But I try to ask myself, am I feeling irritable or short, or short-tempered or more indulgent? You know, what sense general sense do I think I have? And I also ask myself, how am I feeling about seeing particular patients? There are some patients that we may be excited to be seeing, and what does that tell us? about what's going on in the transference, countertransference, Some patients we might not be as interested in seeing or perhaps even dreading, which gives us very crucial data, again, about what's going on. So I try. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I'm listening, remember the Theodor Reich, Theodor Reich who was a disciple of Freud's had a very famous book called Listening with a Third Ear and he talked about the, way, the various ways in which we listen and the different levels of consciousness or unconsciousness that we listen for and to. So my third ear is to use that terminology is kind of trying to figure out what's coming up for me as I'm listening. And now if I'm feeling a little bit frustrated or uncomfortable, I wanna know what that's teaching me about my patient, but I also wanna put myself on notice hmm. that um, I need to be a little more careful perhaps in this moment, um, lest I uh, either get too distracted or not be patient enough in terms of letting the patient's material emerge and so on. So I'm trying to ask these questions because the eye, EYE can't see itself, as Donnell Stern writes, we do need to solicit the patient's input Hmm. as to how they're experiencing us. Does that begin to answer the question?
0: Yeah, I think so that, you know, what I'm aware of and is striking to me is the contrast of trying to move yourself out of the room versus like, wow, there's a lot in the room with me and I need to be attuned to it and curious about it and um, not necessarily blurting it out. Like in in my conversation with Dr. Morota, we talked a little bit about the difference between blurting out every sort of thing that's coming up for you about your patient versus on the other end of that spectrum, sort of this, um, kind of crippling over metabolizing where you're never bringing anything into the room. And so what I hear you saying is like somewhere in the, in between that is what you're doing, like you're metabolizing your own experience and you're not pushing it out of the room, but you're, you're not, you're also not blurting it out just Mm -hmm. without some sense of why you would want to bring this to the patient. Uh,
1: Right. Right, my worry about many analysts' tendencies to bury or avoid themselves, my worry is that the material then comes back more powerfully, the therapist's material that is, and actually is, is more likely to derail some part of the process then. Now look, that's gonna happen at times and then we may find ourselves in, in an enactment, um, which speaking of, of Karen Maroda, who writes wonderfully, about enactment um, in some ways that I, I find very useful uh, and, and cite in my book as well. Um, but on the other hand, on the other end of the extreme, as you're saying, if we blurt out our material too much, then the session becomes more about the analyst than the patient. So yeah, there is a middle space there. We never get it perfectly right because I don't know perfection that it is attainable when it comes to anything obviously, but it's a balance we have to strive for. You know, as we're talking about this, it's reminding me that one reason there's so much confusion about how to define relational psychoanalysis is because no two relational analysts necessarily work in quite the same way. Mm-hmm. You can say, we can say, here's a classical Freudian. We can say, here's a British object relations theorist. We can say an interpersonal uh, psychoanalyst would want to focus on the detailed inquiry and look at the here and now. We can say all of this. What Tony Bass is doing as a relational analyst versus Jessica Benjamin versus Jody Davies versus Lou Aaron versus me versus you and your relational work, any of us um, varies. Mm -hmm. Some of us deliberately disclose, I hope with discretion. Ideally so, of course, but we deliberately disclose quite often. Others of us are very reluctant to. Um, someone like Jessica is focusing so much on culture and politics and notions of repair. She's not focusing as much as Tony Bass does on unconscious to unconscious communication or focusing as much as I do on uh, tracking the analyst subjectivity We all bring within relational psychoanalysis, our own uh, alchemy of a sort or blend Mm -hmm. of of technique. Our own subjectivity, even around the theory, even around the theory I write in the book, I think that that theory is always saturated with the analyst subjectivity or or something to that effect. So yeah, very much so.
0: Hmm. Well, in the realm of self-disclosure in your book, you write, um, Often we must lead the way by disclosing something of our experiences. And I I just kind of jotted down again, sort of how opposite that is in regards to how most therapists are trained. That you know, our job as a therapist in most graduate school programs, it has something to do with like this idea of you have to be empathic and always have unconditional positive regard. And you're holding space and really just following wherever the, the patient wants to go. And you shouldn't have an agenda of any sort or any sort of needs. Um, and, you know, I think like that feels very unrealistic and unhuman to me. Um, and and it, I'm really struck by the, this idea of like, you can fake empathy. Hmm. E- empathy can, you can put a f- empath- empathic face on and you can go, hmm, yeah, that must be really hard. But internally, your authentic experience might be, be something else. Maybe you're bored or maybe you're frustrated or maybe whatever you know and so um when you say we need to lead the way um what again so what does that look like because i hear you saying we sometimes need to ask the patient what their experience of us is um but this when when i read that you have to lead the way I, that feels a little different to me than just asking them what they think am i reading that would you do or? me a
1: favor and read, read that again where i say lead the way
0: um yeah it's it, Let me see. I think it was often we must lead the way by disclosing something of our experiences. Um, And I think it was the section where you talked about a like judicious, deliberate disclosures was another thing I jotted down.
1: I think what I'm writing there, and by the way, there's a funny process that happens when you write something and then either dissociate from it or forget <laughs> it <laughs> for other reasons is that, oh, that sounds good if somebody reads it back, or oh, it doesn't sound so good. Mm-hmm. If someone someone reads it back, I think what I mean in there, if I'm remembering correctly, is that to do a treatment in which the patient is the only one making themselves vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Here we come back to Karen Maroda's writing again. Her her new book on the analyst vulnerability is is I think brilliant. Uh, and mm-hmm. but to be the only party vulnerable is an unfair and unrealistic pressure for the patient to carry. So while most of us are most worried about the therapist not taking over and um, being too much or too impinging, we also have to worry about the therapist who disappears too much, even in our current way of working. By the way, what you were describing before about the grad school agenda, and I quite agree with you of teaching uh, the empathy, and it's only about the patient. I would say that what you described there is a recipe for hating your patients. Mm. Because the reality is if we're all good, all loving, all accepting, completely non judgmental, only empathic, None of which is achievable, of course. But if we think that's what we're supposed to achieve, we're either incredibly—we're either operating with an incredible sense of false self, as Winnicott would call it, and/or we're building up tremendous resentment towards the patient, because the therapy relationship is like every other relationship. And I always say some version of this to patients: whatever happens outside of the room is going to happen in here. Mm-hmm. Whatever your tendencies are. If I'm to be completely honest, it's probably whatever our tendencies are, but we're focusing on the patient. But whatever tendencies are outside of the room, if it's hard for you to say when you don't like something or if your feelings get get hurt quite often, et cetera, these things will repeat themselves in the room and that's great, we'll have a chance to work with them. But what I'm saying now is like any relationship, we're gonna resent our patients sometimes. Or as you said before, Brian, we'll be bored sometimes or we'll get angry at them sometimes whether or not to deliberately share that, if it's even within our control, Mm -hmm. sometimes we do blurt things out, even if we don't want to, but whether or not to deliberately disclose that becomes a matter of technique, and we can talk about that. Um, But we do have to engage in something that I call silent disclosure, and I write about in the book, which is that we have to disclose it to ourselves. We have to say to ourselves, I can't stand this person right now, or I'm bored out of my mind right now. And then deal with whatever guilt it might bring up for us, right? Uh, Or resentment or upset. But if we're not honest with ourselves, then we are not going to be present enough in the room with the patient. Mm -hmm. We're just going to be faking it.
0: I love that. I love the idea of a silent disclosure. I think you're clarifying that for me as you say it now. Like I wasn't totally clear on on what was meant by a silent disclosure. I mean, some of that certainly came through of like, you're just letting yourself be aware. But when you said it's a disclosure to ourselves, like allowing ourselves to be conscious of all the stuff that's getting stirred up and trying not to push parts of us out of the room, but really almost like uh, amusing or metabolizing where I'm, where am I really at? Like I have to locate myself as the therapist and part of my location right now is like I'm irritated with this person, or I, you know, feel bored or sleepy or or whatever it is, um, and I need to feel that. And then, as you point out, like I think there's sometimes that secondary layer of affect that comes with that of like, oh, I feel guilty about that. Like a good therapist doesn't feel bored with their patients; they are always really interesting, and you know, whatever the narrative is of the therapist persona. And so, I think I really. Appreciate how you just said that. It's a silent disclosure to ourself of what is really going on.
1: Absolutely, in my mind, uh, that's a major use of self-disclosure. We we, in the literature, we discuss it as deliberate or inadvertent disclosure. Inadvertent disclosure is the way our offices are decorated, the way we talk, etc. Deliberate disclosures, of course, we we have a better sense of what that means, but the term that that I use silent disclosure um, brings us into this different space that you're describing. Well, Mm
0: -hmm. yeah. Well, I love, I love all this. I want to touch on um, another element of our subjectivity that you really dive into in the book as well around uh, race, gender, and sexuality and how that explicitly exploring those categories um, is part of this, relational revolution in, in a very significant way, an important way, especially uh, the fact that we're living in 2021, like there's a part of that's like, wow, how are we, how are we just getting to this?
1: Oh boy. That's a great question. Exactly. We're in 2021 moving rapidly, too rapidly, not rapidly enough. I'm not sure To 2022 <laughs> and, and how are we just now getting to this? Yeah. Well, um, because the, we, refers to white people. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of the short answer to how we're just getting to this, right? So the power base within psychoanalysis is still the heterosexual white man Mm -hmm. followed quickly by either the heterosexual white woman or the gay white man. I'm not sure in terms of who is running the institutes, who is seen as, um, the the people in control and power, Within society, of course, larger society, but within psychoanalysis and within um, graduate psych programs and graduate social work programs, there's been more uh, progress, mm-hmm. uh, it seems to me, greater evolution. Psychoanalysis has been slow to evolve, so,
0: which strikes me as as interesting too, given Freud himself was a Jew in a barely pre World War II. Uh, world you know that something of psychoanalysis emerged from the margins and so the fact that it got hijacked and maybe maybe that's the right word I don't know but that it, you know how did like that got really lost in the mix somehow
1: I like that word I think Freud himself hijacked it it's precisely though there's the irony or paradox of a sort it's precisely because he was a Jew that race and religion, were kept out of psychoanalysis. Freud and his colleagues were not allowed at a certain point to teach in the universities because they were Jewish. So in part for that reason, meaning that he didn't wanna dwell on on religion and race. And and I keep mentioning race with Freud because um, Judaism was not seen as whiteness in my understanding of the thinking at the time in the teens and twenties and thirties. Uh, uh, Jews were were black, were not white, and were not first class citizens, Mm -hmm. and were not allowed to teach and affiliate academically, et cetera. So that's one reason why psychoanalysis grew outside of the university, a major reason, and rather grew within individual freestanding analytic institutes eventually, eventually. Um, So he developed a theory of the mind, he and his followers and colleagues, in which race and religion, culture, politics, were separate, excuse me. He wanted to look at the pure gold of the psyche, the internal world of the patient and had talk about one's own subjectivity coming into the mix, um, had his own needs to keep religion out. He was trying to create a science that would be taken seriously by those in power at the time and by academics and scholars and uh, even lay people he had to keep he had to keep religion out also in the theory of the mind if any two humans um, are the same meaning it ego superego are functioning um, it's a one person psychology all the basic tenets of classical theory then variables like religion and race right had had to be kept out so from The beginning, the definition of psychoanalysis was something that did not include religion Mm. or race. And um, women were also excluded because women were very much second-class citizens. Mm. Listen, even non-medical doctors were excluded in the beginning. This was a very, talk about what we now understand as privilege, Mm -hmm. white privilege more specifically This is a very privileged society, he and his colleagues were working in. It was upper income, medical doctors only, although Freud protested that. He was more evolved than that and thought that the lay person, the non-MD should be an analyst potentially too, if they wanted to be, et cetera. Okay, so psychoanalysis has no um, real integration of religion or race. And white people are not even aware of being white, meaning as we are as we white people are learning only recently, and I write about in the book, most of us only recently to our shame.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, whiteness is a race and has a meaning and people of color are, and and women and LGBTQ people, but certainly people of color are seen as second class citizens is not part of the power base. And how many, um, you know, how many black people or other people of color are gonna feel welcomed either as patients or clinicians who are going on for further training, who are, how many are going to feel welcomed in the institute world, in the psychoanalytic world? So yeah, we are very far behind. We're very far behind. But look, I had to hide my, as you were alluding to earlier, and quite sensitively, which I appreciate, mm-hmm. I had to hide my sexual orientation as it was emerging and becoming clearer to me, because in the 70s and 80s, even into the 90s, uh, that wasn't allowed in analytic training.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What is the, what is the uh, irony here that, that, and I write this, I think, and it, 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 that we're a profession that claims to want to help our patients explore all of who they are, which includes race and gender and sexual orientation and, and economic status, et cetera. But we're a profession that pathologizes and excludes based on race and gender and sexual orientation it's it's as much as it's a problem in society in general it's a huge problem in psychoanalysis so Mm -hmm. a lot of us are trying hard now finally to educate ourselves and each other and to open psychoanalysis up more than it has ever been opened up
0: Mm. and which is i mean that's a fabulous thing like that turn i mean that has to happen Hundred percent, and I'm curious about the relational psychoanalytic frame as as part of that. Like, what uniquely does relational psychoanalysis have to contribute to, um, you know, sort of dismantling these oppressive systems of, you know, racism or discrimination in any form? Like,
1: uh, I think relational psychoanalysis. Obviously, I'm biased. It's the, it's the way of thinking, whether we call relational psychoanalysis a theory or a collection of theories, it's the way of thinking that the perspective that um, from its inception, from its inception, has made space for looking at some of these issues, even decades before the world and profession were beginning to wake up in more active ways about race mm-hmm. And gender, and I was going to say it's you know it's it's my bias. Sure. Um, I think you know. Listen, there's a wonderful uh, set of videos and writings, um, beginning to be writings, but it's more it in the video still. Called Black Analysts Speak, mm-hmm. that was spearheaded, in my understanding, um, much more by a contemporary Freudian institute than it was by a relational one. So there are some relational people involved with the Black Analysts Speak videos from some years ago. Um, but, you know, contemporary thinking is contemporary thinking, whether one is relational or contemporary Freudian or mm-hmm. temporary object relations theorists, what are we doing? So from the beginning, when Steve Mitchell coined the term, he invited his colleagues in to help him develop relational psychoanalysis. Relational work is the, probably the only theoretical perspective or turn as it has been called theoretical turn that, is multiply determined and founded, right? Classical theory was Freud. Um, object relations theory was Melanie Klein, and then British object relations theory was Fairburn and a few others. Self-psychology was Kohut, But relational psychoanalysis was not just Mitchell, mm-hmm. just Mitchell for two minutes. And then it was the others that I, that I uh, talk about in the book, too numerous to name right now, you and I have talked about a little bit today. But one of the people working with Mitchell pretty early on, was Neil Altman. And Neil Altman had a real interest in looking at uh, sociocultural political factors. His book, which is terrific and in in a second edition now, I think it's called The Analyst in the Inner City, is looking Mm. at what it means to work with people of color, especially when the analysts are primarily white or to work with people that don't tend to have enough money for psychotherapy or analysis, et cetera. And he's looking at some of these issues, Virginia Goldner, Jessica Benjamin, we're looking at gender issues from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So what are we doing to dismantle? Well, we're doing more now than we've done in the past, but from the beginning, we've been asking certain questions that psychoanalysis has not always asked, Mm -hmm. such as what is the role of environment? What is the role of politics, gender, race, and so on? Mm -hmm. That's a start. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And I think that speaks to, I mean, because, Mitchell and other, I mean, they were writing in the eighties, uh, and touching on these things. And I think this speaks to what I, what we've talked about in the beginning too, this idea of like, we've got to get these ideas more mainstream, like out into the world differently than just having them circle around in, in these sort of silos of the institutes. And, um, so I, I appreciated that you, you had that chapter in your book as well. That feels like a really important piece.
1: I'm glad. Thank you. A lot of my writing of this book was during the pandemic, which at first meant I couldn't write because I was feeling so overwhelmed, like a lot of us and anxious, Mm -hmm. couldn't focus. And then meant I could write because the writing of the book became a way to distract myself from some of the pandemic and kind of get through it. But I'm mentioning that because I wrote it during a particular moment in time. So it was also not only the pandemic, as you well know, but also uh, the Black Lives Matter movements, mm-hmm. resurgence, and horrendous uh, police violence against Black people primarily, and other tragedies that we were witnessing, and psychoanalysis has had to become more critical of itself than it has traditionally been.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, I had the, uh, the coincidence of timing and my own education, uh, hopefully moving ahead, that allowed me to bring some of this into the book.
0: Hmm. That's great. Well, I, I want to, I know our, our time is coming close to ending, um, before we end, I wanted to just kind of circle back around to this idea of how do we continue to get these ideas out to a more broad audience? And so the question that comes to mind for me would be something along the lines of like, if you had a recommendation or a suggestion for a therapist who's non-analytic, non-dynamic? Um, like something for them to pay attention to every day when they're sitting with their patients that might help give access to a little bit more of this. What might you say to them? Or at least a, like a nudge in this direction. I,
1: You know, as you're asking me that, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm turning to the table of contents of the book because what I try to do with the book is to ask myself that, Question in part, I, I feel like you're formulating it more explicitly and clearly, maybe than I've been able to. But, but I've I, I been asking myself, how do I describe a complicated way of thinking and working? Right, we've got the theory, which is really a collection of multiple theories, and we have the techniques, which is really a collection of multiple techniques. How do we, how do we summarize these in a relatively brief book? that hopefully will allow allow people to do further study and growth,
2: Hmm.
1: Um, both for people that already know these principles, but also for the people you're describing. Um, I would say to maybe think about some of the basic premises of relational psychoanalysis, just to think about them and what they mean. How would you perhaps define enactment? How would a person define enactment, which I and others of us define as a kind of a mutual dissociation, both the patient and the analyst becomes, unco- not only unconscious, but more fully dissociated from something
2: mm-hmm. that
1: emerges. How do, how do you, I would ask yourself, how do you handle that? How do you define it? What does it mean to you? How do you handle it? Um, what, is it what does the analyst subjectivity mean? Who are you as a therapist? In what ways has your personality and personal history um, affected the theories you're drawn to? and work with the way you think about it? Who are you today with this patient? Who are you tomorrow with the same patient, but maybe also another patient? Who are you in the room? Mm -hmm. Um, And as you were speaking to earlier about the subject of intersubjectivity, which interests interest relationalists, what is that chemistry? What is that third space that you and your patient create? How regulated or not are you? Relational analysts think a lot about self-regulation, both their own, and of course, more to the point, the patient's regulation and attachment history. Who are you? Mm. What are your own biases, whether around race and gender and sexuality, politics, et cetera, and how might those impede your work or possibly enhance it in terms of your own sensitivity? And I would wonder about opportunities for talking about yourself with your colleagues. We're all too lonely in this Mm -hmm. work, it seems to me. There are a lot of lonely souls drawn to doing the work because of our own wounds, as Mm -hmm. as you mentioned earlier. The profession itself uh, is solitary in so many ways. We're alone in the room with a patient. There's a lot of loneliness. How how does that affect our work? But also how do we combat it? Mm -hmm. Do you have colleagues that you trust enough that you can talk to? If not, can you find some, either a mentor or a supervisor or a peer, peer, you know, peer group that you can spend time with? Do you have any interest at all, I would ask, in writing? Hmm. And the reason I'm asking, even for yourself, journaling in a way, because it seems to me that writing becomes a way that we discover otherwise dissociated um, ideas that we have about our patients, hmm. about our interactions with patients. Can you get yourself to write a little bit, even if you never show it to anybody? I mean, you might want to show it to a trusted colleague, or develop it into writing for presentation or publication. But I think it can be just as valuable if it's just for yourself. Mm-hmm. So, how do we address the the ideas of dissociation and, and loneliness and subjectivity in general?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a, that's wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, I I'm grateful for this time with you. I'm really appreciative that you took the time to to do this um, before we officially end. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you are wanting to cover?
1: I appreciate the question. I'm not sure if I can come up with the answer. Probably I'll have an answer to that question sometime later tonight (laughs) when it's too late. That'll that'll Um,
0: just mean we have to schedule another time to do this.
1: That doesn't sound too bad. (laughs) Thanks. You know, Brian, I think the thing I would say is that therapists humans in general, unless we're talking about severe sociopathy, humans in general, and certainly therapists tend to be hard on ourselves. Mm. So I, and I think um, the the mental health profession and certainly the psychoanalytic profession really puts a lot of pressure on our, on us to be so-called exemplary human beings who are well enough therapized or analyzed, who are you know, incredibly well-trained and certified and on and on and on. Hmm. But I love the Harry Stack Sullivan interpersonalist analyst quote, we are all much more human than otherwise. Hmm. And I want us to work on as a profession, giving ourselves more permission for our imperfections, our wounds, our failings. I think to the extent that we can do that, we can forgive those same things in our patients and help our patients to be less, uh, vicious with themselves mm-hmm. to use a very strong, but I think apt word sometimes apt. So let's find ways to be gentler with ourselves, with our theories, uh, with each other. Mm. That doesn't sound too simplistic or Pollyanna-ish, because I think it does make us ultimately better clinicians when we can strive for that kind of forgiving and acceptance. Mm. So maybe that's, maybe that's a place to end a little bit.
0: Mm. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thanks again for for being on. It was a real delight.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure for me to talk with you. Thanks, Brian.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into my conversation with Dr. Stephen Kuchuk. If you, like me, are also a bit of a nerd for all things relational psychoanalysis related and are a therapist who is maybe looking for some ways to integrate relational psychoanalytic ideas into your way of practicing. Um, Or perhaps you're just a therapist who has been practicing for a few years and maybe you find yourself regularly hitting a lull with your patients or not knowing where to go once you get beyond the initial symptoms in order to deepen the work. If this is you um, and you're interested in more, I would, Love it if you would check out the program that I teach in. It's a continuing ed program for therapists that is rooted in relational psychoanalytic ideas, and it's called Relationally Focused Psychodynamic Therapy. It's a two-year program with a lot of continuing ed credits built into it, and it's highly experiential, and has been really transformative in my own work over the last four years. Um, So if you have any interest in this at all, feel free to check it out. I will put a link in the show notes to that program in addition to links to where to find Dr. Kuchuk. Thanks again.